Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And go ahead and turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Here's what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will you always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, your word is a lamp unto our feet. Your word is a light unto our path. So, Father, this morning we pray that you would open our minds, that you would illuminate our minds so that we can understand your word. Lord, conform our lives to your word this morning so that we may be pleasing to you. Lord, we pray this for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the rapture. Everyone who saw the text was like, oh, it's the rapture text. So, yes, yes, we're going to be talking about the rapture this morning and many other things, death and grief and the resurrection of the dead, the return of Christ, just a host of light-hearted topics this morning. I'm being sarcastic, I hope you understand that. But, but as I was, I was thinking about these things, studying this text this week, I was contemplating uh, the weightiness of these things. Uh, I began to, to think how how ridiculous it is, in a sense, for me to stand up here and tell you about all these things, these massive eternal truths that have to do with the, the future of the cosmos and the universe and eternal life. Who am I to stand before you and teach you about death and resurrection? I've never experienced either one of those in the physical sense. I'm 34, what, what possible life wisdom could I share? What insight could I possibly give? And as I was thinking these things, the Lord reminded me that all of these things are true, that in and of myself, I can't speak on these things. And if I was just going to stand up here and pontificate about death and resurrection, then really it's a waste of of all of our time. If 
I was going to just share my life experience with you, I wouldn't blame you for walking out. (laughs) But that's not why we're here, is it? That's not why I'm here. Because if that was why I was here, I wouldn't be here. I guess that didn't really make sense. But you know what I mean. I am here because what we have is the sure and infallible word of God. Amen? And so it's from that that we're going to learn about these things this morning. That's really all I have to say. All I have to say about these eternal truths is what I have found in here. Now, now remember, we're in 1 Thessalonians. We haven't been there for a while. So Paul and his church planning team had planted this church in Thessalonica. They're brand new believers, some of them Jewish, some of them Gentiles. For a very short time, Paul and his team were there, shorter than normal. They had been chased out by an angry mob. Paul sends Timothy. He's worried about them. He's worried about their faith in the face of this persecution. And so Paul sends Timothy to check in on them. Timothy goes to Thessalonica, comes back to Paul, and then Paul writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica to encourage their faith. Now, that context is important because it kind of explains the problem that we see in the text here, this problem that Paul's going to address. It, it seems that Paul had been rushed out of Thessalonica before he had finished kind of his, his basics of Christian theology training with the Thessalonians. They, kinda, they have a hole in their theology that Paul's going to address here. So, so let's look at the text. This is, this is Paul setting this up in verse 13 of chapter 4. The first thing we're going to see this morning in the text is this. Christians should grieve with hope when faced with death. Christians should grieve with hope when faced with death. With death. Look what Paul writes. But, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is a euphemism for dead, those who are dead. That you may not grieve as others who, do, who have no hope. Okay, so this is, this is the context of this passage. So we're going to talk about the rapture. We're going to talk about the return of Christ. But, but keep this in mind as we go through. The context of the passage is, is grieving those who have died. The problem in this church is that the Thessalonians didn't understand what happened to believers who died. Paul hadn't had a chance to taught that, teach them that yet. So Paul tells us, in, ver- in chapter 1, verse 9, that the Thessalonians had really, they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So it's not that they're, they're lacking belief. It's not that they're lacking faith. It's that they're lacking doctrine. They're, they're lacking some, some theology. They, they were believing in Jesus. Paul just keeps commending them in this letter. But they were still thinking about death like when they used to be pagans. They still had some pagan ideas about death or, death, or at least they were confused about death and what happens to Christians when they die. They, they understood that Christ died and rose again. They understood that Christ was coming back, but somehow they, they, they thought, well, maybe if Christians die before Christ, come back, Christ comes back, they, they're just going to miss the resurrection. They're going to miss something. And so Paul is addressing this question. For some reason, for, for this reason actually, they're, they're grieving without hope is what Paul says. They're, they're open to grieving without hope. And why? Well, again, it's because these, these pagan ideas about death were probably still rummaging around in their brain. Now, most Greek and Roman philosophers in the, the Greek and Roman mind, which is kind of the cultural uh, mindset of their day, death was the end. So after you die, that's it. There's nothing after that. In the face of death, 
In other words, there's, there's no hope. There's no hope of resurrection. And you can see this in Acts 17 when Paul's reasoning with the philosophers in Athens. They're kind of tracking with him. They're like, this guy's pretty smart. As soon as he mentions resurrection, they laugh him out of the Areopagus. Because in the Greek mindset, resurrection is ridiculous. The whole idea in Greek philosophy is to escape the body. Why would you want to be resurrected? There's no hope. There's no resurrection. There's no hope of a conscious afterlife. And so, as this, these believers in the Thessalonian church begin to die, maybe from persecution, maybe from other things, they're, they're overwhelmed with grief. Now, listen to some of these statements. I have some statements here from some Greek and Roman philosophers of this day about what death is like. Kind of, you can get, get an idea of what they might have been thinking. So, Epicurus, famous philosopher, he says, death is the privation of all awareness. So, essentially, once you die, kind of like an atheist would think of it today, there's just nothingness. You're not conscious, you're just gone. Poof, you're gone. Okay, that, that's no hope. There's no hope in the face of that. Another philosopher, Catalyst, around the same time, this is what he says, the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief life, our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. Very similar idea. Once you die, that's it. Just unending night. Lack of consciousness. Theocritus, another philosopher, said this, hopes are for the living, but the ones who die are without hope. Okay, so there's very clear connection here. These Thessalonians are, are lacking hope in the face of death. Makes sense in the pagan mindset, but what Paul's going to show them is that this is not a Christian idea. These ideas and philosophies about the afterlife led to hopelessness. Again, why, why were these Thessalonians, man, that word is hard to say. Why were the Thessalonians grieving like this? They were, they were theologically uninformed. That's what Paul says. I, I don't want you to be uninformed. They, they were suffering from a bad case of doctrinal ignorance. And I mean that in a technical sense. They're not ignorant because they're stupid. They're ignorant that they just don't know any better. Paul didn't have a chance to teach them. They were uninformed about what Scripture taught about the death of believers. It's not their fault. But, but think about this. Think about this. This doctrinal ignorance led to practical harm. Doctrinal ignorance leads to practical harm. And that's, that's true for us as much as it was true for them. Sometimes we like to think that, that doctrine, which just is a fancy way of saying teaching, theology, biblical understanding, we like to think that this isn't, it's not really practical or relevant to our lives, you know. Some people like to learn that stuff, those bookish types and tweed jackets. But it's not really necessary for, you know, like the common Christian. I just trust Jesus, and that's good enough for me, right? But, brothers and sisters, your understanding of theology, which is, in another way of saying, your understanding of God and who he is, and his plan for the world, his plan for believers, your understanding of who Christ is, your understanding of his return will affect the way that you live. And quite specifically, it will affect how you grieve death. To the extent that you're lacking in knowledge, lacking in understanding of things that the Bible addresses, it leads to harm. 
God has given us his truths and his word for a purpose, not just to fill our heads, but so that we can live lives that glorify him. Theology matters. What what you believe about God will affect the way that you live, for better or for worse. What you believe about Jesus will affect the way that you live. And specifically, again, here, what you believe about death and the end times will affect the way that you live and the way that you grieve death of loved ones. It will. Doctrinal ignorance leads to practical harm. So let's not be ignorant. The Thessalonians had an excuse. They didn't have the New Testament. We do. So let us take it up and read it. Amen? Another thing that we see in this text is that we are supposed to grieve in the face of death. So notice what Paul's not saying. He's not concerned that they're grieving the death of their loved ones, but he's concerned that they might grieve without hope. Grief is a thoroughly biblical and godly response to death. But unlike the world, we grieve with hope. Not not a sentimental, hallmark channel kind of hope. Not a cheap platitude, Hobby Lobby poster kind of hope. Those things are, are nice, except when you're actually grieving They fade away pretty quickly. When you're staring down into the grave of your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, those don't bring any comfort. What do we need to grieve with hope? To grieve in a a thoroughly Christian way? We need the same thing that the Thessalonians were lacking. We need to understand the resurrection. We need to understand the return of Christ. You want to use a really big phrase. We need biblical eschatology. We need to understand the end times. We need this hope grounded in the eternal and unchanging word of God. You see, again, the Thessalonians believed in Christ. They believed in his return, but, but they didn't know about the resurrection of the dead. They were, they were kind of fuzzy on it. They were worried that if their fellow church members died before Jesus returned, they're, they're going to miss out on something somehow. And so Paul, having, like a good doctor, having, having correctly diagnosed the problem, he now gives them the cure, which is a big, hefty dose of eschatology. He's going to say, Here's, let, me, let me fill up what's lacking in your theology. Let me tell you what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, specifically in reference to those who have died. And that's where he goes next in verse 14. So he, he just tells them, look, don't grieve without hope. Our hope is resurrection. Our hope is resurrection. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, or you could say in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Again, fallen asleep is just a Greek euphemism for death. Now, Paul will get much more detail about this in the next few verses, but but this is kind of the the basic answer to their problem. Don't grieve without hope. Christ died and rose again, and in the same way, in the same way, God is going to bring with Christ, when he returns, those who have died in him. Just as Christ was resurrected, 
those who die believing in him will be resurrected also upon his return. Just like Jesus. Christian, we don't have to guess about what our eternal state will be. God has not left us in the dark. Christ conquered the power of death and the power of Satan on the cross. God vindicated him in his resurrection. By his death, Christ abolished death on our behalf, satisfying the very wrath of God for sin. Because of Christ's work on our behalf, death is not a one-way street for us. Amen? As Jesus said, though we die, we shall live. God has promised to raise all of us from the dead. And the resurrection of Christ was proof, was proof that he will do it. And the filling of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that hope. Christian, if you are here this morning, your faith is in Christ. Understand what this means and why this is true. It's because you are united to Christ by faith. You are in union with Christ. This is, the Bible just hammers this over and over in the New Testament. We are in Christ and he is in us. We are linked, we're identified with him, we're united to him by the power of the Spirit. We're bound together with him, so his fate is our fate. That's why Paul uses that phrase over and over, in Christ, in Christ. He says it over 88 times in his letters. In Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Because you're in Christ, this is true. Because you're in Christ, this is true. That's not, that doesn't just mean that we can have communion with him. That is a huge benefit of our union with Christ. But it also means, like I said earlier, that his fate is our fate. What happened to Jesus will happen to us. Because God raised him from the dead, he will raise us from the dead. That's what baptism is a picture of. We're united with Christ in his death and united with Christ in his resurrection. Paul says this in Romans 6, verse 5. Here's that union language. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and this is kind of his argument, he's saying we have been, we shall certainly, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So think back a couple weeks when Rudolph was explaining to us the resurrection of Christ. Everything that we learned about, that's our future. We will be resurrected just like Christ. Just like the grave, the power of death could not hold him, so to us, because of him, the grave cannot hold us. It will not hold us. Resurrection is our future. The resurrection of our bodies is our certain hope because of Jesus. I love that word Paul uses. We will spend eternity in glorified bodies on the new heavens and the new earth Ruling and reigning with Christ in the presence of God. That is our hope. That is our hope. Not some cheap, sentimental, commercialized version of heaven where we float around in clouds playing harps or something like that. I don't even know where that stuff came from. Not the Bible. That's not the Christian hope. 
The Lord is the Lord of the body, the Bible says, and he has promised to resurrect our bodies. We will live because of him. Don't worry, we won't live forever in these haggard old bodies, but in glorified, immortal, imperishable bodies. Amen? Everyone with an aching back said amen. Now at this point, a natural question arises. Okay, so if the future is bodily resurrection, and that's going to happen when Jesus returns, and we're going to look at that, Paul's going to get into some more specifics. If that's the future, okay, but sometimes we kind of have a similar question that the Thessalonians were probably asking. If we die now, well, what happens in between, right? What happens between my death now and my resurrection in the future? Now, that's a natural question that, interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't really say much about. Now, we get, we get enough, but the Bible doesn't really talk much about that. We call it, the in, theologians call it the intermediate state, right? In between death and resurrection. After death, before the resurrection. Well, I was thinking about this question this week. Why doesn't the Bible say much about that? And it's clear. Because the intermediate state is exactly that. Intermediate. That's not our hope. That's not our future. That's just a temporary kind of holding place, to put it in a strange way, until we are resurrected with Christ. Resurrection is the focus. Resurrection is the hope. The appearing, we read this in Titus, of Christ is our blessed hope. Not the intermediate state. So the focus is all on the resurrection. But there are some texts that shed some light on this, so I just want to shed a little bit of light on this, and then we'll move on. So 2 Corinthians 5 sheds light on this. And here's the basic idea. When you die in faith in Christ, if you're a believer, you will be in the presence of the Lord. That's basically all that the Bible tells us. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says this. So we are always of good courage. We know that we all, while we are at home in the body, so living, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So you can see what Paul's saying. If we are away from the body, in other words, dead, we are with the Lord, present with the Lord. He says the same thing in Philippians. He says, I, I, I don't know, it's that famous passage where he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The reason to die is gain is because he's going to go and be with Jesus. Revelation 6, again, gives us a picture of this. And this text really speaks to the conscious nature of the intermediate state. Now, there's all sorts of stuff going on in this text, but just notice where these believers are. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So you can see, they're, they're, they're resting from their works, they're in the presence of God, they're speaking to God, they're praying, in a sense. This is what the Bible sheds light on. Apparently, that's all we need to know. It's enough to know that pur purgatory is not a biblical doctrine, soul sleep is not a biblical doctrine. No, when you die... Christian, you will be in the presence of the Lord. You will rest from your labors. 
But, but, that is not your hope. That is temporary. You're waiting. It's a waiting place, waiting for Christ to return to earth. And we will all be resurrected. The resurrection is our hope. It's our future. But Paul doesn't stop there. This is why I love this text. This, the New Testament is filled with texts about the resurrection. But here Paul sheds a, a unique light onto what it will look like when Christ returns. Now this, this is, on the one hand, extremely encouraging. And this is, on the other hand, the reason why this text has been so hotly debated over the years. So even just preaching on this text, I just know someone's going to get mad at me. And that's okay. Uh, that's kind of what you sign up for when you sign up to be a pastor. So this is, this is one of the most famous texts about the rapture. And this is actually, this text is where we get that term rapture. If you look down at verse 17, where in English it says caught up, in the Latin translation of the Greek word is basically rapture. So that's where we get that word from, is from this text. So rapture, just a fancy way of saying this time, what this text is talking about, when Christians will be called up to Christ. Now what that means, there's some debate over. And so I want to kind of lay out that there's, there's essentially two ways to view this, and I want to lay these out for you. Now, number one is what we'll call the, the secret rapture view, or you could kind of label this in your mind if you think like left behind, like that understanding of things that um, people could, will be like, you know, the, how the book starts with the clothes laying on the ground, they've been taken away secretly to Christ. That's one way to understand the rapture. And probably in the last hundred years has been the most popular in evangelicalism. It's a dispensationalist understanding. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. It's a secret rapture. So, so the general idea is this. Christ is going to come back uh, in the clouds, but kind of secretly. The faithful will be taken up with him into the clouds. The unfaithful will be left on the earth. And then Christ will take them, the faithful, back to heaven. And then seven years later, Christ will come back to earth and descend all the way to earth. Now, this view necessitates uh, separating Christ's second coming into these two separate events. So you've got kind of the secret rapture. Christ kind of comes a little bit back and then goes back to heaven and then later comes all the way down. Now, again, this view has kind of been the most popular within the last hundred years, but historically, we don't really find it explained anywhere before the 1800s. That being said... Many brothers and sisters and well-respected Bible teachers hold this view. It's a view that I was kind of raised with by default, and I'm sure many of you have too. Some of you probably didn't even know that there was any other views besides this one, um, and I didn't until I started really studying the Bible. So that's, that's the, the secret rapture view. So kind of take that, put it off to the side. Okay, the other view is what I'll just call the historic understanding. This view affirms that the event here that we read about is the public second coming of Christ. So there's just one coming of Christ. And so when Christ comes, all this stuff is going to happen. It's the day of the Lord. It's judgment. It's, it's over. New heavens and the new earth, it's all happening. Christ appears in the clouds, descends, gathers his people to himself, then descends to earth to rule and reign. Now this, again, is the, the traditional understanding of the church when viewed historically over the full timeline of the church, but that doesn't make it right out of hand. 
Uh, again, as with the other position, many Bible-believing brothers and sisters, well-respected Bible teachers hold this view. And I'll just put my cards on the table and say, this is what I think this passage is talking about, and I want to show you that. But before we get into the text, know this. This, this end-time stuff, talking about the return of Christ, is, is not a first-order issue. In other words, we can do disagree about end times theology, and still gladly fellowship in the church. Amen? This is why I love the Baptist faith and message. The section on the end times, uh, which is our, by the way, Baptist faith and message is our statement of faith, takes no specific position on the rapture. So either position you hold, you are welcome to the fellowship here. The Baptist faith and message affirms alongside the apostles and the Nicene Creed and Orthodox believers, that Jesus is returning bodily to judge the living and the dead and kind of leaves it to us to figure out the details. If you affirm the return of Christ, you're welcome here. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. The Bible is our sole infallible authority. So we need to agree to believe what the Bible teaches. So what that means is this. Don't just believe whatever I say. Study it yourself. Be like the Bereans. But be careful that you're not just assuming your understanding of the end times because that's what you've always been taught. Let's not get our view of the end times from left behind books or any other fictional books, just like we shouldn't get our view of heaven from some best selling author that supposedly went there and came back, right? We should not believe these views, well, because that's what I've always been taught. Whatever you believe, you should be convinced by holistic and thorough biblical arguments. Number three, this is not a full discussion of eschatology. So we're just going to dip our toe in the water this morning, which will probably just leave all of you unsatisfied, and I understand that. We're always available to talk about these things more if you have questions. So, all right, let's look at this text. So let's all kind of set aside our preconceived notions and just ask yourself, what is this text describing? What is this text describing? Is is it talking about this kind of secret rapture or is it talking about the second coming of Christ? Let's, Let's read verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So you can see Paul's assuring them right there. Look, those who have died before Christ returns, those who are alive in Christ returns, no one's going to get better treatment. It's all going to be the same. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. What a passage. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Imagine that. Bodies coming up out of the earth. You saw it in Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. The earth will give birth to the dead. Wow. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So, so again, put it, put it in your mind. Got all the dead have resurrected, and we're still here, and then together we'll be caught up. That's that rapture. We'll be be raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's what Paul says. So the question we need to answer 
that kind of is the difference between these two positions is this. Who is doing the U-turn here? Okay? Now let me explain what I mean. Everyone believes Christ will descend in the clouds. Believers are resurrected and caught up to him and will be with him always. Everyone agrees on that. Here's the disagreement. Then what happens? Does Christ do a U-turn and take us back to heaven? Or do we do a U-turn and we descend with him to earth? You see the difference? That's the disagreement. Now, at first glance, it doesn't seem like the text says, right? just says we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll just always be with him. Well, thanks, Paul. Why can't you just give us, you know, the rest of it? Here's the reason. The people back then would have known exactly what Paul was getting at with this text. And so I want to give you a couple of arguments for why. And that's, this is my argument, that this text is teaching that we are the ones who will do the U-turn, descend with Christ to earth, and he will establish his kingdom to rule and to reign. This text is not describing him turning around and taking us back to heaven. This text is describing how we will honor and welcome and accompany Christ in his descent to earth, not how he will take us out of the world. Okay, so here's what I want to show you. A couple, couple of arguments. Let me show you why. Again, don't believe me. Study your Bibles. But here's why I'm persuaded. Number one, and this is kind of the main and most persuasive argument in my mind. Look at that term, to meet. It's in verse 17. In the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. That is a very, very important word. Put, you can put your finger on it. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds this is the purpose of the rapture, to meet the Lord in the air, okay? Now, in English, this doesn't, okay, we'll meet him. It doesn't give us any clarity. But in Greek, it really does. This is a technical term. This is a term the Thessalonians would have known what it meant. This term, to meet, describes a practice in the ancient world where when a city was expecting, now you can just think of like these medieval movies you've seen, think of like Gladiator, okay? Caesar's coming to Rome at the head of his victorious army. They've just conquered, expanded the glory of Rome. And what happens? The people of the city come out of the city to meet their conquering king and then accompany him back in in a victory parade. That's what this term means. It's how you would honor the arrival of either a new king or a conquering king. This brought them honor. This was a widespread practice in the ancient world. Everyone knew him. If you, you can just, just Google sometime later today, Roman Adventus, that was the name for it, and there's articles about it. They'll, they'll describe what they did and how they you know, prepared the city, and they all would go out and come back. This is common practice. But not only in Rome. We see this term, this exact same word, used in multiple places in the New Testament to describe this exact thing. I want to show you a couple of them. Acts 28, 15 through 16 should be on the screen. Okay, and then, now when you're reading in English, every time in your Bible that you see the word meet, it's not the same term, but these ones I'm showing you, it's the exact same word. Acts 28, okay, so Paul's traveling to Rome. Look what he says. Well, Luke says this. And the brothers there in Rome when they had heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet, that's our special term, to meet us. 
On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. You see what's happening there? Paul's traveling to Rome. These brothers from the city to honor Paul, to welcome him, travel 33 miles, that's how far it is, travel 33 miles to meet him and then accompany him back to the city, okay? This is a technical term. This is what this term means in the ancient world. That's our first example. Same exact term. But there's, there's a couple of better examples. Now think in your mind, Bible Trivia 101, can you think of a time when Christ entered a city and received a kingly welcome? Jerusalem, that's right, Palm Sunday. We're going to celebrate that soon. Now, this same term is used, and, and kind of put those lenses on and, and listen to John 12. Listen to how John describes this. So here we have literally a king coming to the city. The next day, John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what did they do? They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Okay? They're going out of the city to meet Jesus, to then go somewhere else with him? No, to come back with him to the city. They went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You see, this is a regal, royal ceremony. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The king is coming to Jerusalem. What do the people do? They go out to meet him, to honor him, to welcome him, and they come back with him. You see how this could bring someone honor. I mean, if Jesus just came by himself to Jerusalem, it doesn't really make much of a commotion. But if half the city goes out to meet him and greet him and comes back with him to the city, it's honor. It's honor. When the king comes, the people go out to meet him, to welcome him to the city. And this, this triumphal entry was, was merely a, a tame preview and foreshadowing of Christ's ultimate triumphal entry into his realm, amen, to earth. But even more than that, there's another example that's even better that references the second coming explicitly. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, it's the parable of the virgins. Dustin taught on this probably three or four months ago. This parable is about the second coming of Christ. And we find this exact same term in it. Matthew, I'm not going to read the whole parable. It's long. Matthew 25, verse 1. Okay, so here's the parable. Then the kingdom of heaven, again, royal imagery, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps, and here's that term, and went out and went to meet the bridegroom. So they're going out to meet him. Down in verse 6, but at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Okay, so the bridegroom is coming, and the virgins go out to meet him. And then look what happens, 10 through 13. And while they were going to buy, so this is the other virgins, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. So they went out to meet with him, and then they went in to the marriage feast. You see the same pattern. Afterwards, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And his application, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour of the coming of Christ. This is the pattern in the New Testament with this word. You go out, you come in. 
Why? To welcome the king. To welcome the king. This is why 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul didn't need to say anything else. When he says this word, they know what it means. It's to go out and come back. It's to honor, to welcome. This is exactly when, when Paul used that word, the Thessalonians, good Romans, most of them, they would have immediately pictured Caesar coming into Rome as a conquering king. Paul's saying, that's what Jesus is going to do, and we're going to go out to meet him. And we're not going to just walk out to meet him. He's going to call us up to himself in the air. Imagine, imagine in your mind, first of all, the sound of the trumpet of God. The earth shaking, the graves opening, the bodies of the dead faithful raising again, and then all of us, I mean, I don't, how many millions of people is that going up into the sky and then coming down with Christ? Amazing. One of my favorite depictions of this is famous hymn by Charles Wesley. He's writing in the 18th century. He, he describes this beautifully. It's a hymn called, Lo, He Comes on Clouds Descending. He wrote it based on this passage. Listen to the first verse. Lo, which means look, he comes with clouds descending. Once for favored sinners slain, thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, hallelujah, God appears on earth to reign. That's what this verse is saying. Not God turns around and goes back to heaven. God appears on earth to reign. That is our hope. And as he comes, we will swell the triumph of his train. In other words, we will add honor and glory to him as we accompany him back. Secondly, this is, this is my second argument. And again, all these are very brief, I understand that. And, and we'll deal with this one a little more next week. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and 5, 1 through 11. So the next little paragraph there in your Bible are talking about the same event, okay? Now, if you believe in the secret rapture view, you have to say that these are talking about two separate events because in that view, there's no judgment when the rapture comes. 5, 1 through 11, we're going to look at it next week, is all about judgment of unbelievers. You have to separate these two, and, and my claim to you is that is an artificial distinction. Again, remember, when Paul wrote this, there's, there's no chapters, there's no verse numbers. He's transitioning between these two. He's talking about the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is, is what will happen to believers at the return of Christ. 5, 1 through 11 is what will happen to unbelievers at the return of Christ. That's number two. Number three, the historic understanding fits best with the rest of Scripture. So we've kind of already seen that. We've, we've fitted it in with some other Scriptures. But all of this language that we find here, the trumpet of God, the cry of command, the archangel, this is day of the Lord language in the Old Testament, day of judgment. Paul is signaling that this event is the day that the Old Testament is always talking about. It's the day of judgment of unbelievers, and it's the day of restoration and resurrection of God's people. 
Now, we're not going to look at all these Old Testament texts. We don't have time for that. But, but the rest of the testimony of Scripture clearly teaches that there's one return of Christ. Judgment for unbelievers, resurrection for believers. Christ descends to earth to rule and reign. These events, judgment and resurrection, come in the same event. Again, if you hold the secret rapture view, you say they're, they're different events that happen at different times. My argument is that they can't be. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 5. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Okay, his voice, cry of command, you see some connections there. All are coming out of the tombs. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the same event. It's the same hour. An hour is coming. This voice will do the same thing. Okay, so that's one text. But, but perhaps the most closely related to, to our text today is Paul in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul clearly equates these two events, the judgment of unbelievers and the restoration and resurrection of believers. It's the same thing. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10 says this, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, okay, this is the coming of Christ. He's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They, unbelievers, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now listen, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. It's the same event. He's coming on one day. What's going to happen? He's going to judge unbelievers and he's going to be glorified and marveled at by his saints. In chapter 2, verse 1 in 2 Thessalonians, he, he equates these again. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, okay, that's, he's saying, that's what I was just talking about in chapter 1. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay? The day that we are gathered to Christ the day that unbelievers are judged is the day of the Lord, is what Paul is saying. He doesn't want them to think that it's come already. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of the resurrection. These are the same day. It's the same event. Christ comes victoriously to rule and reign on earth. The only distinction is how you experience it. If you're in Christ by faith, the resurrection to eternal life, to glory, you Reject Christ in unbelief, it's a resurrection unto judgment, everlasting damnation. Fourth, historic. In other words, this has been the historic view for the first 1,800 years, so to speak, of the church. Again, it's not an argument. It's more of an observation. It doesn't make it right. But it says something that this idea of the secret rapture appears nowhere in Christianity until about the 1800s. It's fairly new on the timeline of of history. Let me give you just one example of, of a preacher who's preaching on this in the 300s, 300s AD. So pretty early, John Chrysostom, one of the most famous church fathers. This is how he preaches from this passage. Now again, it's, it's interesting. He doesn't give much clarity to it either because again, he like Paul, just everyone knows what it's talking about. This is what John Chrysostom says. 
if he is about to descend, speaking descending to earth, on what account shall we be caught up? So why are we going to be raptured? He says, for the sake of honor. For when a king drives into a city, those who are in honor go out to meet him. But the condemned await the judge within. And upon the coming of an affectionate father, his children indeed are taken out in a chariot that they may see and kiss him. But those of the servants who have offended remain within. See, they're going out to meet, to come back. We are carried, he continues, upon the chariot of our father. For, for he received him up into the clouds, and he quotes Acts on the ascension of Christ, we shall be caught up in the clouds. And then he says this, do you see how great is the honor? As he descends, we go forth to meet him. And what is more blessed than all, so we shall be with him. Brothers and sisters, Christ is coming. He's not coming to whisk us away, but to call us up to himself, to welcome him to earth, to welcome the returning king. He's coming, as we sang, he's coming with his kingdom to rule and to reign and to exercise his dominion. Our hope lies not in removal from this world, but the redemption of of this world. So what should we do with this understanding? Is this all just pie in the sky, nerdy theological stuff? No. Paul commands us to use this knowledge to encourage one another. Look at verse 18. This is his his finish. He's just talked about all this stuff and this is how he ends. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. Paul is literally saying, use your eschatology to encourage one another. And you can ask a question, well, how can I use eschatology to encourage one another? A better question is this, though, as I was thinking about it. How can we not encourage one another with these things? The the truth of Christ's victory over death, the truth of the resurrection of his people, the truth of his reign on this earth, the truth of his triumphal return, This is what fueled the early church. This is what fueled the martyrs. This is why they so willingly gave up their lives. Because they knew that they served the one who had abolished death. So they gladly and fearlessly went to their deaths. So be encouraged. Take heart. The same God who was able to bring life out of cold dust and earth in the creation will once again bring life out of the dirt. Just as Christ was raised, so too we who sleep in the earth will come to life. Your loved ones who died in Christ will also rise in Christ. You will meet them again. And together, and together you will welcome the coming king. One of my seminary professors told us, once that it was this text and and this understanding of this text that alone gave him comfort as he was shoveling the dirt onto the coffin of his seven-year-old son. He says, "I, I had memorized the text and shovel after shovel, I just rehearsed it to myself. Christ is coming. Resurrection is coming. I will see him again. He knew that his son lived. That one day, he would live again. That together, together they would meet Christ face to face and welcome him with joy. So until Jesus comes, encourage 
one another. Let, let us remind each other often of the truth of Christ's return. I mean, has there ever been a time in our lives when we needed this hope? The reign of our future king more? In the face of, of wars and violence and unchecked governments, there is only one solution. Not to leave the earth, but for Christ to come to earth. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one with on his thigh says faithful and true. He'll draw a sword to judge the nations. This is our hope. This is our hope. Not that we will escape, but that Christ will subdue and rule and establish his reign. So let us assure one another with this hope, the resurrection in the face of death. Think about this for a second. Isn't it interesting? Think about the last couple of funerals you went to. We often comfort ourselves, not, not with the truth of the resurrection. We've, we've somehow gotten away from that. And I, I don't even know why. But often we, we comfort each other with the truth of the intermediate state, right? He's in a better place. She's with Jesus now. Now, that's true. That's absolutely true. And that does bring some comfort. But that's not our ultimate comfort. That's not our ultimate hope. That's not how Paul taught the Thessalonians to grieve. He says, no, no, no. Don't, that, you can kind of skip over that. If Paul was conducting a funeral, he would have preached the resurrection. You will see them again. Together, we will welcome Christ. Christ is coming. So as we encourage one another, let's encourage one another that way. Day is coming, brothers and sisters, when the trumpet will sound. The voice of the archangel will ring throughout all of creation. The dead will rise. Tombs will open. The dead in Christ will rise. Together, all of the faithful, we will ascend to meet him in the air. And we will come with him to earth, to rule and to reign forever. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. So in the meantime, until he comes, grieve with hope. Look forward to that day with eager expectation. Look forward to our blessed hope, the return of the king and the resurrection of our bodies. I want to finish, I want to read to you the rest of Charles Wesley's song. Then we'll pray. It says, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Once for favored sinners slain, thousand, thousand saints attending. Swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, God appears on earth to reign. Now redemption long expected. See with solemn joy appear. All his saints by man rejected meet their Savior in the air. Hallelujah, see the day of God appear. He finishes with this verse, my favorite. Yes, amen, let all adore thee, high on your eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for your own. Oh, come quickly, oh, come quickly, everlasting God, come down.